Quick content warning up top. This episode contains some strong language, mentions of alcohol abuse, and unavoidable descriptions of Morris dancing. This is Fogland Lighthouse. I'm Jack Dean. Scene one, exterior, field outside a small English town, night. A fierce blizzard howls through the hedgerows, reducing visibility to a handful of meters. A man in bright, jester-like clothing runs across our field of vision. This is Thomas Sly. The camera pans out to reveal the snow-blasted countryside around him. He climbs to the top of a hill, a long trail of heavy footprints behind him. Thomas. Well! 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 Thomas comes down the other side of the hill, slips, tumbles downhill through the snow. He gets up, looks out over a frozen-over river. A man is dimly visible, moving erratically across it. As Thomas gets closer, we see the man clearer. He is wearing a cap with a feather in, an Elizabethan doublet with a bright tree pattern on the chest, and streams of banner-like fabric coming out of the arms, colourful breeches and many small bells on his shins. The erratic movement is because he is Morris dancing over the ice, which is steadily starting to crack underneath him. Thomas. Will! For fuck's sake, Will! Come back! Will. Piss off, Thomas! Thomas. Will! It's not worth it! Just... Will falls through the ice, disappearing completely. Thomas. Shit. Cut to black. Title. Nine days. Subtitle, a spurious, conjecture-ridden narrative based on real events. Scene 2, exterior, the Globe Theatre, day. Title, five months earlier. Every square inch of the theatre is packed, and the usually rowdy audience is held in a spellbound silence as Octavius delivers the final lines of Julius Caesar, standing over the fallen body of Brutus. It's the golden hour on a September day. That time before sunset, when everything is bathed in soft orange light. Octavius. According to his virtue, let us use him. With all respect and rites of burial. Within my tent his bones tonight shall lie. Most like a soldier, ordered honourably. So call the field to rest and let's away. To part the glories of this happy day. Applause starts as a ripple, then becomes a wave, then a tsunami, as the actors take their bows and leave. But the loudest cheers by far happen when Will Kemp takes the stage. He's in his early 40s, but a life of hard touring and harder drinking make him look older. Chants of, Kemp, 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 rise up. Will. Are you ready for the jig? The crowd goes wild. Plays are fun and all, but many of them are mainly there for the jig. These would follow every play of the time, as sure as cockfighting and bear-baiting would later in the evening. And no one does a jig like the legendary Will Kemp. On a balcony behind him, Thomas strikes up a rhythm on a tabor, a small portable snare drum, to lead the band in the accompanying music. An explosive mix of folk dancing and slapstick comedy follows. A male backup dancer in flimsy Roman costume and terrible drag comes downstage. Will follows him in a horny circular routine around the stage. The dancer turns, bends over, and his huge padded buttocks send Will on a series of awkward backflips, cartwheels and pratfalls across the stage. 
the audience shakes with laughter. Will looks out across the theatre. Near the back of the standing area, Shakespeare and Burbage are having what looks like a tense conversation. Shakespeare visibly winces when a second buttock-based tumble happens to raucous cheers and starts massaging his temples. Scene 3. Exterior. Globe Theatre. Day. It's the day after the show. Venue staff are sweeping away the rubbish left by the crowd. Actors are warming up for the next performance. Will sits on the edge of the stage, drinking wine straight from the bottle. Thomas walks over, sees the bottle, decides not to comment on it. Thomas. They've called a shareholders meeting in the musician's room. Will. And they couldn't be bothered to come fetch me themselves, could they? Lazy bastards. Will drains the rest of the bottle and chucks it on the floor, where it breaks right in front of a sweeper, then gets up and walks backstage into a dim, candlelit room. Burbage, Shakespeare and the five other shareholders of the Lord Chamberlain's men are assembled around a table. Will. All right, lads, what's the business? Burbage. We've been looking ahead to the next season. Will. Crackin'. More comedies is what we need, I reckon. When are we going to bring back Falstaff? They bloody loved it when I did Falstaff, they did. Burbage. That's just it, Will. We think it's time to go in a different direction. Will. Right. As in, no more Falstaff? Burbage. As in, no more jigs at the end. Will. Fuck is you talking about, Richard? Burbage. Shakespeare has some big plays lined up for next year. Serious plays. Shakespeare. And you've got to admit it, Will, the jigs do undermine the pathos of the denouement a bit. Will. You can stick your pathos right up your denouement, Billy. People come to the theatre to have a laugh. Shakespeare. They come to see plays, not to see a drunken clown fuck up all the lines I wrote. Will. I was making them funnier, you balding twat. Will eyes the rest of the shareholders sternly. Will. Eh, put what you like on, but I'm not going out there if there's no jig. Burbage. That's why we called the meeting. Burbage slides a piece of paper across the table. Burbage. We'd like to buy out your share in the company. Will. You bastards. You'd be nothing without me. I'm the one that brings in the punters. I'm the one that goes out there and works my arse off while you sit back here and bank the profits. Burbage. You can keep chastising us, Will, or you can take the money. Either way, you won't be performing here anymore. Will looks down at the paper, then back at the shareholders. There is a faint hint of pleading and desperation beneath the contempt on his face, as if looking for someone, anyone, to speak up for him. No one does. He smiles grimly. Will, know what your problem is, lads. No sense of humour. He walks out without signing. Scene 4. Interior. Tavern. Night. Will is drinking alone. The landlady is closing up. She approaches, clears away the pile of bottles and tankards around his table. Landlady. Off you go, we're closed. Will. Let's have a lock-in. Landlady. You gonna pay your tab? Will. I'm cash poor right now. Sort of between jobs situation. She grabs his arm and starts dragging him outside. Will. Do you know who I am? Landlady. A bloody scrounger, that's what you are. 
Quill. I'm Cavalier Kemp, headmaster of Morris Dancers, high headborough of highs and the only tricker of your trillillies and best bell shangles between the lands of Nod and Norwich. Will seizes the landlady and twirls her about in a mixture of Morris dance and waltz while humming an improvised tune. She punches him squarely in the jaw, making him tumble into the cobbled street. Landlady. Well, why don't you jig the fuck off to Norwich then? The door to the pub slams shut. Still lying in the street, Will's eyes widen. Scene 5. Interior, Globe Theatre, Day. Burbage is sat alone at the table in the musician's room, which still has the sale agreement on it, along with a bag of coins. Will enters in the full Morris dancing regalia from scene one and strikes an epic pose. Will, I'm taking this costume. I brought it into this company and I shall take it out. Burbage, take it by all means, just please sign and get out. Will picks up the quill, signs the paper throws the quill high into the air, jigs around in a full circle, picks up the bag of coins, flicks the Vs to Burbage, and leaves. Scene 6. Montage. Still in costume, Will heads into a printer's, hands them a few coins out of the bag. Hundreds of pamphlets are printed. We only glimpse the text on them. Something like, February 11th, Lord Mayor's house. Witness the daring feat of the legend Will Kemp. Will hands out more coins to some street urchins who head out into the streets of London, handing them out and shouting about the event. Will goes into a building with the sign, George Spratt, bookmaker, civil law notary, chicken merchant, etc. He empties most of the remainder of the coins out of the bag, pushes the sizable pile across the counter like poker chips, leans over the counter to tell George the nature of his wager. Scene 7, interior, tavern, night. Will and Thomas are sat round a table. Will is pouring out wine. Thomas is reading the pamphlet. Thomas. So, the bet is that you'll Morris dance from here to Norwich in nine days. Will. Yeah. Thomas. What odds did you get? Will. Three to one. Thomas. That's not bad for a worn old boot like you, Will. <laughs> Piss off. Will reflects for a minute. Then, in a brief flash of vulnerability, Will, come with me. You'll be back in time for the next season of the Globe. I'll give you a tenth of the prize money. It'll be a laugh. Pause. Will shrugs and pours more wine. Or don't, whatever. I don't need help. I just thought you'd like the opportunity to... Thomas takes the wine bottle out of his hand. Thomas, half the prize money and no drinking on the way. Will, a quarter and a little tipple each night. Thomas, a third and no drinking. Will, deal. Scene 8, exterior, Lord Mayor's house, London, day. It's early on a frosty Monday morning. A small stage has been built and a sizable crowd has gathered around it. A man takes bets next to a blackboard with a list of various wages and their odds chalked onto it. Failed due to broken foot or leg, 5 to 1. Failed due to crime and banditry, 10 to 1. Failed due to complications from drinking and whoring, 1 to 2. George Spratt takes the stage. George. Thank you all for coming. 
Mr Kemp will shortly be departing on his journey with the eventual destination of the Guildhall in Norwich. As the official observer of Mr Kemp's voyage, I shall be periodically viewing his journey to verify that he completes it on time and adheres to the rules of the wager, which I shall now enumerate. Willis stood behind George on stage. Thomas climbs up and stands next to him, dressed in bright, jesterly folk-dancing clothes. He holds the tabor in one hand and a fife, a small flute, in the other. Thomas. How do I look? Will. Like a prick. Thomas. Good. That feels on brand. George. Firstly, Mr Kemp may take as many rest days as he wishes, but he must complete the route in no more than nine days of jigging. Will sees Shakespeare move through the crowd and place a bet at the stand. George. Secondly, Mr Kemp may cease to jig en route to his accommodation so long as he returns to the last spot he jigged at and resumes from there. Crowd member. Get on with it, you knobber! George. All right, you have made your point, sir. All that remains is for me to declare that betting is now closed and may the jigging commence. The crowd cheers. Thomas impressively manages to play both the tabor and the fife at the same time. Will starts Morris dancing, off the stage and down the street. Right knee up, left foot hop, two quick steps forward, left knee up, right foot hop, two quick steps forward, arms up, both feet hop, repeat. Thomas walks a bit more prosaically by his side. Title, day one, 116 miles to Norwich. Fogland Lighthouse is written, produced and scored by me, Jack Dean. I get research assistance from Lucy Jane Santos and project management from Plum Grosvenor Stevenson. This season is supported by Arts Council England. The show is presented by Jack Dean and Company. You can find out more about us and our other projects at jackdean.co.uk. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, or you can email me on jack at jackdean.co.uk. If you get a moment, please leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or share the podcast with someone you think might like it. Those both help an awful lot. I'll catch you guys next week.